This episode was made possible by our top-tier Patreon supporters, Phil Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you want to support the show from as little as £1 a month, you can do so on Patreon by looking for Demystified Podcast, or even just following us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. Every little bit helps the show out. Now back to the regularly scheduled programming. November 18th, 1978. Jackie Spear is a 28-year-old aide to a California congressman, Leo Ryan. Like him, she's a Democrat, a young progressive from San Francisco. So what then is she doing on a runway in Guyana, in the sweltering heat of the late afternoon on a tiny airstrip in some rinky-dink podunk town in the middle of nowhere? Well, her boss, Congressman Ryan, has decided to personally visit the South American country located just above Brazil at the request of his constituents, because it isn't just the Guyanese that live there. There's an American settlement, too. Until 1966, Guyana had been a British colony, but after gaining its independence, it sat relatively quietly. Until 1974. You see, Guyana was not a wealthy country. To this day, over 35% of the population live below the international poverty line. So when some wealthy Americans asked the government to lease some land in the middle of the jungle for a little project of theirs, how could they refuse? Reverend Jim Jones had been acting as a faith healer since the 1950s, with his congregation, the People's Temple. New Age Christian philosophy with socialist beliefs thrown in was the order of the day, and though it was founded in Indiana, it moved soon to California, where it took a hold in a number of towns and cities. In the 60s, Jones had started scoping out places to build a commune. He was particularly taken with South America, and on a flight to Brazil, he swung by Guyana by chance and eventually decided that this was where he would be creating his paradise on Earth. So in 1974, the People's Temple created the settlement of Jonestown, Guyana. The real reasons for the move to Guyana weren't so idyllic as they would have you believe. A number of locations from across the Caribbean were scouted for their tax laws and extradition treaties with the US. Bodes poorly, doesn't it? The land itself was bad and barren, dismally infertile soil even by the standards of Guyana, and no easy access to potable water for miles. But it was on the Venezuelan border, which the Guyanese government thought prudent. If Venezuela ever tried to invade them, they'd have to risk going through American citizens. But it is the 70s. Isn't it psychedelia time? Aren't New Age religions all the rage? Why did a US congressman and his aides fly out to investigate them specifically? Well, by 1978, all sorts of allegations had been filtering out of Jonestown. Many relatives of people who had initially gone willingly to Guyana were beginning to suspect that they were in fact being held against their will. Ryan had known a man named Bob Houston. His son had been a member of the People's Temple, but back in 1976, his mutilated corpse had been found by some railroad tracks, three days after a taped phone call revealed his intentions of leaving the congregation. This would be suspicious enough, but then all of these People's Temple members start leaving the states for a country with lax tax laws and no extradition? Ryan had been a man motivated by social justice. He hated the idea that anyone should be persecuted, but it cut both ways. Whilst the People's Temple should be free to worship their strange religion, murder and torture of those who wanted to leave the group was beyond the pale, even outside of US jurisdiction. After all, newspapers in San Francisco were becoming chock full of letters from increasingly vocal groups of relatives concerned for their loved ones in Guyana. When he attempted to ask the State Department to investigate, he found himself rebuffed. 
constantly being told it's all fine, they're just some sellers who should be left to their own devices and we don't need no investigation. The president at the time, fellow Democrat Jimmy Carter, disliked the idea of the US getting involved politically in Guyana, a member of the Commonwealth, and the potential legal ramifications of an intervention against a sovereign country over the actions of US citizens with no explicitly stated reason. The incident that moved him, however, was when Congressman Ryan met a man named Tim Stone. Stone had previously been a member of the Congregation of the People's Temple, but it defected, and his six-year-old son John was being held by Jim Jones in Jonestown, and he couldn't get him back. The trick was that whilst he was still a member of the Temple, Stone had signed an affidavit to state that Jim Jones was the boy's father, which gave him legal custody. After his defection from the Temple, prompted by his wife's defection first, Stone had become public enemy number one, Jim Jones repeatedly stated privately on many occasions how he wished to have Stone murdered. Their feud was the centerpiece for what happened next, if you believe the Reverend's words. The custody battle had become a linchpin. If Jones could keep the boy, he could prove to his followers that God was on their side and he was more powerful than any American attorney. But if they should fail, it would damage his credibility. The entire commune could leave him. So it was that Leo Ryan, with his aides and some journalists, chartered a flight to Guyana in November of 1978. His trip was a government one, with full permissions and funding, and he went with every intention of seeing exactly what was happening in Jonestown. As the chairman of the House Subcommittee on US Citizens Living in Foreign Countries, despite his request, no other members of other major bodies went with him. Dan Quayle, future Vice President of the United States, wanted to go, but was busy. Despite the intention of travelling quietly, the final group consisted of Ryan and his aides, 17 relatives of those in Jonestown, an NBC news team and various other assorted journalists. Jones attempted to have the visit prevented, but Ryan's response was that he would go whether or not he was invited. Strictly speaking, the visit was not intended to shut down Jonestown, merely to ensure that the people who wanted to leave willingly were allowed to leave willingly. On the 14th of November, Ryan left Washington and his group arrived in Georgetown, the capital of Guyana. For the next three days, despite being forced to sleep in the lobby of a hotel, they held meetings with representatives from the Guyanese government, local officials, and legal representatives of the People's Temple. On the 17th, a smaller group flew to Port Kaituma, the airstrip nearest to Jonestown, and despite an initial warm welcome by a delegation from the People's Temple, NBC correspondent Don Harris was handed a note that read, Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, please help us get out of Jonestown. Gosney was the man who handed the note to Harris, and after Jim Jones was made aware of the presence and intentions of the delegation, Gosney attempted, unsuccessfully, to warn the group of the danger posed by the People's Temple. They were a long way from the US Embassy at this compound deep in the jungle. It housed all sorts of terrible things. Over the next day, interviews at Jonestown were held with those who wished to leave the settlement, and despite one of the People's Temple members attempting to stab Congressman Ryan with a knife, he insisted on staying and helping as many people leave as wanted to. The group left the Jonestown commune on the afternoon of the 18th of November for the airstrip, with 14 defectors and one man who was pretending to be a defector, Larry Layton, in tow. At 4.45pm they arrived at the airstrip, but their transport planes didn't arrive until 10 past 5. When one of the planes was circling to taxi, loaded full of people, Larry Layton pulled out a gun. Chaos erupted. The People's Temple members who had been escorting them to the runway drew their weapons and unloaded on the group with rifles and shotguns. 
For those who might be inclined to see the camera footage of that event that still exists, it's not for the faint of heart. Congressman Ryan was hit 20 times and he, along with three journalists and a defector, were killed. Jackie Spear, the young aide, was badly wounded. She, along with others, lay injured for 22 hours, taking cover behind the wheel of one of the planes and running into the jungle until help could arrive. She had been shot five times, but survived. The passengers did subdue Leighton and the survivors fled into the nearby fields. One of the planes took off and the attack was radioed in and the US ambassador immediately called on the Guyanese prime minister who sent the army. Why did the help take so long to get there? Well, as stated before, Guyana was a poor and underdeveloped country on the northern edge of the Amazon rainforest. Jones had chosen the site specifically to be hard to reach, inscrutable. When it was made known that the cult was armed and dangerous, the army moved in speedily but cautiously and had to cut their way through jungle to reach the airstrip and the commune further in. When they arrived, the scene was straight out of a nightmare. 909 people, including children, were dead. The investigation revealed that most had died after drinking or being forced to drink a poison cocktail of flavor aid. This is where we get our modern expression, drinking the Kool-Aid. Young John Stone, at just six years old, was among those killed at Jonestown. Don Harris, the NBC correspondent, was also killed, and Congressman Leo Ryan remains the only US Congress person to be killed in the line of duty. Ronald Reagan, staunch Republican president, awarded him the Congressional Gold Medal posthumously in 1983. And what of our aide, Jackie Spear? Well, she's currently a sitting US Congresswoman herself. Her district today, the 14th District, representing much of what Ryan had previously represented with the 11th District. The Jonestown Massacre, or mass murder or mass suicide, is the single biggest loss of American civilian life in a deliberate incident until September 11th, and would have as much resonance in US public life. A poll just one year after the fact found that 98% of those polled had heard of the event. Of it, George Gallup, of Gallup Poll fame, said, quote, Few events, in fact, in the entire history of the Gallup Poll have been known to such a high percentage of the US public. Quote. For a simple example, as we mentioned before, we now describe anyone who has been brainwashed as drinking the Kool-Aid despite the survival of Kool-Aid of the PR nightmare that followed and Flavor Aid's continued obscurity. That's a little strange. How did this happen? How did Jim Jones go from an obscure Indiana pastor to a mass-murdering cult leader? How did a small-time congregation in San Francisco end up as one of the most infamous mass suicides of all time that resulted in the death of a sitting US congressman in another country? Today on Demystified, we look into the fact and the fiction of the People's Temple in Jonestown. If you know anything about cults, you know about this one. It's the big time, so to speak. This season we'll be covering cults that had more odious practices, if you can believe that, and ones that did more damage, per se, but Jonestown became the yardstick by which you measure a cult in the pop culture consensus. I mean, it makes Charles Manson look like your grandma's cult, a handful of desert fanatics. These guys had an entire jungle base and killed hundreds of people. 
In this part, we're looking into how that happened. In part three, we'll be trying to get back to our theme of what we can learn from this. And for those who enjoyed the political overtures of last week, I haven't forgotten that we will be tying it back in. The first place to begin, I guess, is with Jim Jones, the Reverend of Death. He wasn't charismatic like Manson was charismatic, but he did have that ability to convince and coerce people into doing what he wanted them to. We'll get to that in a bit, but first a bit about him. He was born in 1931 in Crete, Indiana, a rural town, and grew up dirt poor. In 1934, his family was living in a shack with no plumbing, as the Great Depression had hit his First World War veteran father badly. Somewhat unsurprisingly, Jones became intensely interested in politics and philosophy. Poverty can often lead to the desire to study to improve one's situation. His reading list was as extensive as it was eclectic, especially for the 30s and 40s in America. Karl Marx, Stalin, Mao, Gandhi, and Hitler? Quite the contrast, huh? His social awkwardness around his friends and family led him towards religion. Whilst others spent time playing, he spent time praying. He was said to have a somewhat disconcerting obsession with death, that he killed a cat once as a child and held funerals for any small animal that died on their property. Lest one have too much sympathy for Jones's father, he was apparently a member of the Ku Klux Klan, by the way, which had regained popularity in the 1920s. Jones, however, was the stark opposite of his father in that respect having integrationist sentiments at a time when, in rural Indiana, that was not the norm. In 1949, he married a nurse, Marceline Baldwin, and she stuck with him all of his life, even to its dark conclusion. He listened to Eleanor Roosevelt speak on the struggles of black Americans while at university. What I'm trying to communicate here is that whilst he was definitely odd as a child, he wasn't stupid, or he wasn't backwards. He was progressive for his era, university-educated, very well-read. So was the evil he would later express always within him, or did he obtain it somehow? To speak of Jones' beliefs, we need to talk about communism in the 50s, in America. It was, to put it mildly, no bueno. The HUAC, the House Committee on Un-American Activities, dogged the steps of everyone even barely considered a socialist, and Jones himself found himself being tracked by the FBI after attending meetings of the Communist Party. Irritated at the open persecution of communists in America, Jones believed that if he could just infiltrate a church, he'd be able to hide his political beliefs while simultaneously demonstrating them. After all, Jesus taught many things that we would call socialist today, sharing your wealth, abandoning worldly pursuits, easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, that sort of thing. While witnessing a faith-based healing service at a Seventh-day Baptist church in 1952, he realized that churches make money. So if he could make that kind of church money, he could fund his political goals. So, set up a church. In 1956, he founded the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel, or the People's Temple, for short, an interracial church with a stated desire for racial integration, socialist politics, and spreading the good word of the Lord. But underneath all of this high-mindedness, there was a dark undertone, as you might expect. By night, Jones apparently studied the writings of Adolf Hitler to learn how to manipulate people, and began using these techniques to bend his followers to his will. Part of this, which we'll get back to later, included creating enemies of the group. The use of enemies is a well-known way of unifying people for a common goal, and Jones was determined to find an enemy to unify against. But if he studied Hitler, he wasn't a Nazi. His anti-segregation views appeared, if we take his childhood history to be true, as genuine as did his desire to help people through enacting social change. 
He encouraged so much desegregation in Indiana, for instance, that it ultimately prompted him to move due to death threats he continually received from Indiana Nazis. Ugh, I hate Indiana Nazis. On that note, it's worth talking about his so-called rainbow family. He and his wife made a point of adopting children who weren't white, and in fact, they were the first white couple in Indiana to adopt a black child, as well as having three children who were orphans of the Korean War, one child who was part Native American, and one child who was white. In 1962, he moved his family to a city in Brazil called Belo Horizonte, which is a little bit north of Rio de Janeiro. Ostensibly, this was because he was afraid of a nuclear war, and it was, according to Esquire magazine, one of the safest cities in the world in the event of that. I don't know why, apparently it just was. It was on this trip that several things happened, though. Firstly, he made his first stop in Guiana on a layover flight. Secondly, he had a chance to study Brazilian syncretic religions. What's a syncretic religion? Well, it's where an outside religion, usually a big one like Christianity, for example, blends with a local spiritual and religious practice to make something that is a little bit of both. One example of this is Haitian voodoo, where West African religious practices brought over by slaves blended with the Christian theology forced upon them, creating a new religion, or sorts. This encouraged Jones to do his own theological blending. Thirdly, communism in Brazil was nao boa. That's no bueno for Portuguese. So Jones started emphasizing his religious views over his political ones, framing his socialist beliefs through the lens of religion. But despite setting up a life for themselves in Rio, where they moved for work reasons, Jones realised the temple was collapsing without his presence back in America. Without the charismatic leader, the cult was falling apart. So they returned in the December of 1963. This is where things start getting doomsday. He told his followers that in 1967 the world was going to have a nuclear apocalypse and that a socialist heaven on earth would emerge after that. To ensure their survival, they needed a commune in California. So that's where they moved next. His theology got more blended. He called it apostolic socialism, which was a form of radical communism mixed with his staunch religious beliefs. And then he got strange. He started renouncing mainstream Christianity as a tool of oppression. Had he just stopped there, you might be forgiven for thinking, fair point. But he didn't stop there. He said he was the reincarnation of Gandhi, Jesus, the Buddha, and Lenin, all rolled into one. He was quoted by a former temple member, Hugh Forston Jr., as saying, quote, what you need to believe in is what you can see. If you see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. If you see me as your father, I'll be your father. And for those that don't have a father, if you see me as your saviour, I'll be your saviour. If you see me as your God, I'll be your God. End quote. That is a sourced quote, and it provides an excellent insight into the cult leader mentality. Rarely is it ever so transparently laid out. Perhaps Jones didn't necessarily think he was all of those things, but he offered himself up as that for his followers. The crazy part is that he thought that he could possibly be all of those things to those people. But it shows how the cult leader is malleable. There's no fixed identity, and they allow people to project their views onto them like a blank canvas. Even with somebody so staunchly grounded in their genuine beliefs as Jim Jones, he was still telling people, hey, you can see me as whatever you need to. Within a few years of their relocation to California, the cult experienced major growth. Obviously, the nuclear war didn't happen, but by the 70s, the cult was stronger than ever, and they refocused away from their initial base in Yukia, California, to San Francisco, the city by the bay. Why? Well, as well as just having more people to sell their ideas to, San Francisco in the 70s was a hotbed of radical political thinking. They quickly became ensconced in the politics of the city, helping to tip a mayoral election in 1975. 
His political connections grew exponentially. By 1976, he had personally met Rosalind Carter, the First Lady, and Vice Presidential Candidate Walter Mondale. Governor Jerry Brown of California Uberalis fame and notable LGBT activist Harvey Milk spoke at his events, as did Angela Davis, civil rights notable. They all just thought this guy was the best thing since sliced bread, a charismatic progressive who walked the walk and had the ability to reach both radical religious types and city cosmopolitans. For a California politician, this guy is a no-brainer to get on your side. We're going to come back to Jim Jones, but let's take a look at Jonestown for a second. The move to Jonestown was prompted by one event in 1977, but the project itself had started several years earlier. The People's Temple Agricultural Project, better known as Jonestown, was a commune established in northwest Guyana, deep in the jungle, by Jones as an attempt to create his idyllic communist paradise on earth. The trick of it was, however, that once you entered, you weren't allowed to leave, no matter what the people there did to you. Back in 1973, the People's Temple began looking for a place to flee to, should they need such a place. Their inner practices, which allegedly included sexual, emotional, and physical abuse of members, were starting to surface, and in the event the public opinion turned severely against Jones and his cult, they'd need somewhere to go. After scouring the Caribbean for a suitable location, Jones settled on Guyana. Its government was nominally socialist, it had low rates of taxes, and at that time, it had no extradition treaty with the United States. That means if he fled there the US government couldn't get him back. Furthermore, there were several other advantages to Guyana. Firstly, it was English-speaking. Secondly, it had a large indigenous population as well as big immigrant communities, including black, African and Caribbean, East and South Asian, and white populations, who all lived in relative harmony. Jones's message of racial integration would be well-received. On a more sinister note, Jones also may have believed that the poverty-stricken country would be very easy to corrupt, which unfortunately ended up being true. The land they acquired was a hair off of 4,000 acres in the middle of the jungle, 150 miles west of the capital of Guyana, Georgetown. It was right on the border with Venezuela. It was Jones himself who suggested to the Guyanese government that, should the Venezuelans' violent overtures materialise, its American presence would deter any attack. The site itself was poor, the soil was bad, the nearest body of water was seven miles away across dirt roads. For Jones's purpose, however, the extreme isolation of the site, its remoteness and its inaccessibility meant that he would be well concealed from the outside world. Between 1974 and 1976, construction occurred, and some interesting shipping relaxations granted to the People's Temple by the Guyanese government meant that firearms and drugs were able to be smuggled into Jonestown without let or hindrance. Jones's bribes to the Guyanese government meant that he was able to get them to prevent opponents to the temple from getting visas themselves, and obfuscate attempts by his members to leave. If you wanted to get out of Jonestown, you needed Jones's say-so, and he was not saying so. The US government did have their eyes on Jonestown, of course. The Monroe Doctrine stands at least in name to this day, and the US cares about its backyard, as problematic as that concept is. But since Jones was so popular with leading political figures back in the US, they saw no reason to stop him. Besides, he was warming relations between the US and Guyana, and if he wanted to take his communist commune outside of the United States, so much the better, right? But the mass migration would come in 1977, the event we mentioned earlier. An article published in US Magazine by Marshall Kilduff, a journalist investigating the cult, revealed allegations of abuse by members of the People Temple, backed up by former members and noting the strange disappearances and deaths of those who'd tried to leave the cult. Jones had caught wind of this ahead of time, and the population of Jonestown rose from under 300 to around 900 in the space of a year. 
For zookeeping track, that's triple the size. Overcrowding was a serious problem, and life changed for the worse for those in the commune. Things had been kind of fine. You used to be able to watch Western movies, if you want, trucked in from Georgetown. Now, all there was to watch was Soviet-produced propaganda shorts and documentaries about American social issues. Jones instituted new bureaucracies designed to increase his direct control over the cult, but this curtailed productivity and buildings and fields soon fell into disrepair and ruin. It was quickly becoming apparent to many, within and without, that Jones was becoming a paranoid wreck. His nighttime lectures on socialism and religion soon turned into rants about his enemies, a desire for an alliance with the Soviet Union and a discussion about revolutionary action. Initially, your workday in Jonestown was 6am till 6pm with an hour for lunch, six days a week. This fell to eight hours a day, five days a week when Jones's health deteriorated and he started losing control. Leisure activities mostly revolved around brainwashing, as explicitly stated by the People's Temple, with techniques taken right out of the playbooks of Mao and Kim Il-sung, using essentially what amounts to an abusive form of behavioural therapy to modify his followers' behaviour. He would lead discussion on events, which revolved around him minutely analysing them and giving lengthy and sometimes rambling monologues on his take on them. The same went with the movies screened there. If you didn't find his speeches interesting or didn't get it, Jones would fly into a rage and berate and humiliate you in front of the rest of the class. How dare you not understand the true socialist meaning? How dare you ignore me? Nothing could be watched on film or TV without a member of the People's Temple staff there to interpret it for you, no matter how seemingly innocuous or benign it might be. Everything was either capitalist propaganda or socialist cinema, and if you didn't agree with that perspective, you would be punished. Jones would read news broadcasts himself, censoring them to fit his perspective and his opinions. It would be played on loudspeakers several times a day. You had no choice in whether you wanted to hear Jim Jones reading the news or not. For all of this, Jonestown was not self-sufficient. We've already covered twice that the soil was bad and potable water was not abundant. Almost all food had to be trucked in. Meals sometimes amounted to little more than rice, beans and a few vegetables. Meat became a luxury item. Despite having a personal wealth of 26 million US dollars, Jones and everyone else lived in small houses, often communal, with walls woven from palm leaves in some cases and almost no modern luxuries. It's the middle of the jungle, what do you expect? Well, tropical disease, for one. In February of 1978, the commune was struck with severe cases of diarrhoea and high fevers afflicting half of those living there. How did they fund all of this? Mostly social security checks. Around $65,000 a month was signed over to Jonestown residents by the US government, which then got handed over to Jones and the temple staff. Despite interviews at the US embassy to ensure that nobody was being forced to hand their money over against their will, we can be sure given later events and testimonies, that that did happen. As for the actual abuses that happened, members could be subject to all kinds of things. Imprisonment in a 6 by 4 by 3 foot plywood box, children being made to spend the night at the bottom of a well, sometimes suspended upside down, beatings by senior temple members, and even druggings with Valium and sodium penthol for those who tried to escape. Armed guards patrolled the compound day and night, ostensibly to protect the cult, but in reality to police it and keep the members in. Children, in particular, were communally raised. Their only father was Jim Jones, who they all refer to as father, seeing their biological parents was restricted to a brief visit at night. 33 children were born in Jonestown, interestingly. Also interesting is the demographics of Jonestown, by the way. Nearly 70% of the residents were black. 
with black women making up 45% of the total population. This was almost certainly due to the fact that the People's Temple had come up originally as an original anti-segregation movement in rural Indiana, a place where that was not a convenient opinion to hold. As we said before, Jones had received death threats from Nazis and had stood side by side with noted civil rights leaders, and had in a few instances actually enacted change in some segregated areas. The year before the Jonestown Massacre, Jim Jones received one Martin Luther King Jr. Award for Humanitarianism, presented to him on stage by civil rights activist Pastor Cecil Williams. What happened? This is one of those enduring tragedies of this event. Had things turned out differently, could Jones have used the People's Temple as a force for good? It looked like that at the beginning of his career. What changed? Well, one of the things that changed in the short term was Tim Stowen. His son John was claimed by Jones as, back in 1971, when his wife Grace had first considered defecting, Stowen had asked Jones to essentially seduce her on his behalf to keep her in the cult. When she left, it broke the spell on Stowen, and in 1977 he defected himself. But when he asked for his son back, the temple refused. They claimed he wanted to corrupt the boy into a capitalist lifestyle, and the legal affidavit he'd signed earlier, stating Jim Jones as the child's father, held water. This was one of the incidents that sparked the creation of the group of concerned relatives, as they were known, those who had family members living in Jonestown, and through the whisperings of the Guianese locals living near the commune, they'd heard the tales of forced captivity, torture, and abuse. This then got to the desk of Leo Ryan, a congressman for California's 11th Congressional District. Despite his designs to investigate further, many in the San Francisco political scene didn't believe the accusations and defended Jones publicly. But Jones was, by 1977, acutely aware that he was losing public support in the United States. The more his cult tried to make people stay, often through overt violence and manipulation, the more the rumours began to circulate and the more people began to see his project for what it was. A reasonable man, not that a reasonable man would torture people, mind, would at this point accept their failure and end the experiment. But Jones doubled down. He became a paranoid obsessive. He frequently addressed his commune with claims that the CIA was conspiring to destroy him, despite him actually hiring conspiracy theory writers to try and fabricate evidence to support this, didn't really work. One of those who helped Jones, by the way, conspiracy theorist Mark Lane, presented himself as a man motivated to help Jones by the righteousness of his cause. In reality, he was being paid US$6,000 a month to generate conspiracy theories in support of Jones. Once again, those nights spent studying Hitler came to the forefront. If you need quick unity, find an enemy and generate hatred. And that's what Jones did. During events called White Nights, Jones would gather his commune and tell them that, should the worst come to pass, they had four options. The first was fleeing to the Soviet Union, the second fleeing into the jungle. Too cowardly. The third was fighting back. Brave, but futile. The fourth was what he called revolutionary suicide. They would take their own lives and become martyrs for the cause, in doing so provoking global awareness. The choice was an open vote, and when at least two white knights resulted in victories for the suicide option, they would hold simulated mass suicides. Deborah Layton, a temple defector, described it as such. Quote, Everyone, including the children, was told to line up. As we passed through the line, we were given a small glass of red liquid to drink. We were told that the liquid contained poison and we would be dead within 45 minutes. We all did as we were told. When the time came that we should have dropped dead, Reverend Jones explained that the poison was not real and that we had just been through a loyalty test. 
He warned us, though, that the time was not far off when it would become necessary for us to die by our own hands. End quote. Back in 1976, Jones had obtained a jeweler's license, which he'd been using to import cyanide into the compound, ostensibly for cleaning gold. A memo from 1978 reveals temple doctors were testing dosages on pigs. Then came the Six-Day Siege. Tim Stone's custody battle resulted in orders of protective custody for his son John. So Jones set up a false flag attack, wherein a sniper from the Guianese Defence Force supposedly shot at the compound. It was actually one of his cultists. He then had members of the cult surround the compound with guns and machetes, and the White Knights begun. Getting activists, including the aforementioned Angela Davis, to communicate their support for the commune via radio, the siege lasted for six days, at the end of which the Defence Minister of Guiana, Ptolemy Reed, gave assurances that no assault by the army on the compound was forthcoming. In spite of his role in actually orchestrating this fake event, Jones had convinced himself that the Guianese were no longer to be trusted, they weren't his allies. He did explore options emigrating elsewhere. North Korea and Albania were two popular options amongst his inner circle. At this point, though, despite his apparent victory, Jones's physical and mental health was in freefall. He was informed of a possible lung infection, which he then told his followers was actually lung cancer, a move designed to garner sympathy from them. He had become heavily addicted to drugs. Between Valium, barbiturates and quaaludes, Jones was often out of sorts. He had a high blood pressure, had apparently suffered a series of small strokes in 1978, rapidly gained and lost weight, couldn't sleep for days and nights at a time, suffered temporary blindness and was slurring his words. The man who had once pounded out charismatic speeches at the pulpit could now barely stumble his way through rambling, self-aggrandizing conspiracy theories with barely lucid eyes. This is where the investigation hits the fans and we get to that fateful day. By November, Leo Ryan had decided that the continuing rumours, as well as Jones's increasingly erratic public statements, warranted him going personally to see whether this was true. Ryan arrived in Jonestown himself on the 17th. He'd attended a musical reception that night, and whilst the reception was initially warm, Jones then went on a rant about government conspiracies and how he would soon be martyred. Now is a good time to mention how we know so much about this, by the way. The People's Temple recorded vast amounts of their internal memos in both writing and audio tapes. For instance, on the night of the 17th, we have a recording attesting that Jones had prepared a statement designed to convince Ryan that everything was fine. That night, Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, two defectors, tried to run. The note we read earlier was passed to Don Harris, the NBC spokesman, who was mistaken for Ryan by Gosney. But this was witnessed by a child, who alerted Jones's staff. When Harris brought the notes to Ryan and Jackie Spear, she would later state that this was the point when they started to realise just how sinister the situation truly was. This simple act possibly doomed Ryan, his party, and the entire population of Jonestown. Because now, Jones knew that the defectors were going to try and spill their guts. He couldn't stop them, or else Ryan would have all the ammunition he would need to bring the US and Guyanese courts into the mix. But if he let them go, exactly the same thing would happen. This to Jim Jones, was the signal that everything was coming to an end. The only path left was to take as many people with him, didn't matter on whose side, his side, the enemy's side, as possible. At this point, 11 defectors, including members of the family of Joe Wilson, head of Jonestown's security, saw the signs that things were about to go badly. They walked through the jungle all the way to the town of Matthews Ridge. They would survive the events to come. The following day, we have the airstrip attack. 
When in the late afternoon Ryan and his delegation along with the defectors tried to leave for the airstrip, they were joined at the last minute by Larry Layton, a cultist pretending to be a defector. In spite of several people's suspicions, he was allowed to join. On the way to the airstrip, Don Sly, one of the cultists, attempted to stab Leo Ryan with a knife. He failed and was restrained, and Ryan joined the truck that was leaving. He initially had wanted to stay as long as was possible, but was convinced to leave and return later when things got safer. At 5.20pm, as the groups were boarding their planes, Leighton pulled out a handgun and began shooting. Within minutes, he was joined by the Red Brigade, the temple security force who'd been shadowing Ryan's group, and together they shot indiscriminately at the party. Five died, eleven were injured, and although Larry Layton was subdued, and later became the only person ever convicted for Jonestown in a court of law, things had only just begun. One of the planes managed to escape. Its pilots called in the attack, which alerted the US and Guyanese governments to the situation. The other was stuck, and those injured had to wait behind on the airstrip or fleeing into the jungle and to the nearby town. One group got lost in the jungle for three days, but managed to survive their ordeal. Now, when Ryan had left Jonestown, his intent was to state that the conditions in the commune were basically fine. None of the specific relatives of the constituents he'd been sent by actually wanted to leave, and it was thought that much of the imprisonment talk was simply due to peer pressure and physical isolation, more so than actual imprisonment. Despite having basically gotten away with it scot-free, Jones was convinced that he had failed. Moreover, when he learned that Larry Layton and the Red Brigade were tailing Ryan, he was certain that there was going to be an altercation that was going to result in people dying. The level of general paranoia was such that no one could accept that the government would be willing to leave them alone. His wife Marceline announced that everything was fine and for residents to return to their homes. Whilst that announcement was happening, Jones prepared a mixture of grape flavorade, Valium, cyanide, and a host of other poisons. Thirty minutes later, Jones made his own announcement, calling all members to immediately gather. He then made a speech which is partially recorded and now referred to as the death tape. In it, he explained that he was certain that once their soldiers had shot Ryan and his party, there would be a retribution in which all of their children would be stolen from them, taken to the US, and brainwashed into capitalist fascists. Thus, he said, it was better for them all to die now, commit his idea of revolutionary suicide. Christine Miller, a Temple member, refuted him. She said, why not flee to the USSR? The plan is still feasible. But when Jones's speculation was confirmed that Leah Ryan had been murdered, her disagreement ceased. This is where things get really grim. Is your warning up front? The poison took a while to take effect. 30 minutes for the adults, and so some saw their children dying, and the adults in the process of it. They then began to get cold feet. Some were unwilling to take the poison, and had to be forced to take it. Others may not have even realised that this was the real thing assuming it was just another trial run, as with the White Knights. Odell Rhodes, a survivor of Jonestown, reported that the hysteria reached a fever pitch when the parents started watching their children succumb to the poison. Armed guards forced people to consume the drink or have it injected into them, and when enough people had drunk, the guards themselves took their turn. Jim Jones was found lying on a pillow with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Apparently, he couldn't stomach the fate that he'd forced on his followers. In notes written, some of those who died, including Marceline Jones, bequeathed all their worldly possessions to the Communist Party of the USSR. I can't imagine Leonid Brezhnev was particularly keen to receive that particular endowment. Some did survive Jonestown. Tim and Mike Carter and Mike Prokes had been given money and passports to deliver to the Soviet embassy in Jonestown. 
They witnessed the poisoning firsthand when they returned. Tim Carter arrived just in time to see his son dying of the poison given to him by his wife, who then took her own life out of sheer guilt and despair. He immediately had a nervous breakdown, and his equally tortured brother pulled him away from the scene and to safety. Odell Rhodes had volunteered to fetch a stethoscope to help the proceedings, and then ran and hid under a building. Who could blame him after what he'd seen? Charles Gary, Mark Lane, the conspiracy theorist from earlier, and Stanley Clayton had all managed to flee the poisoning. Grover Davis, 79 years old and hearing impaired, actually missed the loudspeaker announcement, and when he realised what was happening, lay in a ditch and pretended to be dead. Hyacinth Thrash, 76 years old, simply crawled under her bed and hid. In the aftermath, the world realised the following day what had happened. The Guyanese authorities tried to process the dead, but they were stretched so thin that many ended up with PTSD from the experience due to the sheer quantities they were handling and their relative lack of training. The US House Committee on Foreign Affairs and the US State Department issued formal criticisms for their own failings. Forbes Burnham, the Prime Minister of Guyana, was majorly embarrassed by the incident and in an inquest held responsible for the deaths. In fact, if you ask to this day, what's one thing you know about the country of Guyana? A lot of people might say Jonestown. In February of 1980, Al and Jeanne Mills, the co-founders of the Concerned Relatives, were found murdered in their home, execution style. The case remains unsolved to this day. There were words thrown around about a CIA conspiracy theory, but the evidence for this is pretty thin. Not that the CIA hasn't done terrible things, just not this one specifically. Interestingly, though, Leo Ryan himself had launched a congressional committee in 1974 into the lack of oversight of CIA activities. And, I guess, finally, we have the phrase, to drink the Kool-Aid. As before, the brand was actually Flavor-Aid instead of Kool-Aid, but the phrase is stuck, and now whenever somebody follows someone blindly or accepts something uncritically, we say they've drunk the Kool-Aid. A rather dark, modern idiom. Well, that was cheery, eh? Next week will be a bit more upbeat, only insofar as the story is wild compared to this one, but this was just bleak. And trust me, I'm writing this in the wee hours of the morning, not just because of my terrible work ethic, but because researching it was so damn draining, it really did take me that long. But you can't talk about cults without talking about Jonestown, and there's a lot to demystify here. So let's start with a very basic question, one that we asked of Charles Madsen. Did he really believe it? Did any of them? Here, I tend very much towards yes. Jones's childhood was weird, but we all know that one weird kid at school, right, who's a bit too into things, you know? That doesn't mean they'll become a cult leader. Manson's childhood was abuse and crime, whereas Jones was a regular scholar in spite of his poverty. He spent much of his life genuinely championing progressive causes enacting positive social changes. And at night, he studied Hitler for lessons on how to manipulate people. Jim Jones strikes me as a man who believed to the core of his being that the ends always justify the means. If he had to manipulate his cult into following him to achieve a socialist utopia, so be it. If he had to imprison them for their own good, so be it. If he had to kill all of them to save them from being brainwashed into capitalists, so be it. Jones's personal philosophy was very heavily inspired by communism, and to that extent his ends justify the means approach makes a lot of sense. If you read Lenin, Stalin, and Mao all your life, you will probably end up taking that perspective. 
His religiosity seems to be the part that he played up, if anything. He did seem to be genuinely fanatically religious, but considered all organized religions except for his to be an opiate of the masses. Unlike most communists, however, he didn't seem super concerned with things like class consciousness or dialectics. Instead, he seemed to care about putting his beliefs into reality by any means necessary. But as we saw with his earlier quote, he was also willing to be malleable, the true hallmark of a cult leader. He literally said to the effect of, I can be whatever you need me to be, even God. Jones was mad, definitely towards the end. He'd spent a life building a fanatical core of followers and the thought of losing them was too much to bear and so he lost all touch with reality. Tim Stowen was sadly one of the links in that broken chain. The man himself had been brainwashed by Jones and wanted his son back. But his son John was murdered in Jonestown at the age of six. But Jones's philosophy of aggressively designating enemies and targeting them with all malice was centered for a long time around Tim Stone. As much as Jones wanted him gone, he ended up a useful scapegoat for any problem that might arise. He also made a target of the US government, which later came to bite him back. He'd spent so long witnessing his fellow communists being persecuted that he couldn't accept the changing times. The Red Scare of the 40s was over, and Leo Ryan, on the day of his death, was willing to basically report that the cult was little more than a weird sect. When you create that image of an enemy, however, you can't be rid of them. He'd had an attorney, writer, and conspiracy theorist on payroll drumming up hatred towards people like Stowen and Ryan. And with the threat looked like it might disappear, cultists like Larry Layton and the Red Brigade couldn't accept the reality. They had to destroy their enemies, by whatever means necessary, even if it meant their own deaths. Perhaps that's what Jones meant when he said he realized it was all over. He realized he could no longer control the cult. He had made the enemies too big and the cause too righteous, and so it would be better to die and not watch it fall apart than go on living and be held accountable for the horrific suffering that was going to happen. In terms of who was targeted by Jones, the black community is the obvious first port of call. At a time when, again, it was not politically expedient, Jones championed their causes as a white man in Indiana, and so gained many followers in progressive circles. As we mentioned, 70% of Jonestown was black. Jones himself was white. His communist messages of total equality and liberation from capitalism appealed to the poor, to outcasts, to those who had been mistreated in mainstream US society, and his radical religious messages kept him in decent standing in spiritualist circles. Despite referring to himself as the only true heterosexual, he had relations with both male and female followers, in spite also of banning extramarital sex for other Jonestown members. The drug use can't be ignored. Jones was high as a kite for most of 1978, and it certainly contributed to his rapical decline physically and mentally. His autopsy, for instance, revealed levels of barbiturates that would kill one not accustomed to frequent use. So what lessons can we learn from Jim Jones and Jonestown? The big one would be that a positive goal and message cannot justify drinking the Kool-Aid, a lack of scrutiny. I told you I'd bring it back to modern politics and I will which is why that some people, including a certain former president, have followers who will blindly ignore all of their faults and misdemeanors, not excuse them, not justify them, just ignore them wholesale. For some, it's because their cause is so just, so righteous, that no matter how dark the movement gets, it's always justified. We see this a lot in radical political movements all over the world, when someone believes that strongly in a cause, anyone harmed in the purpose of that cause is a stepping stone. They're a martyr. And if that cause has a leader, that leader can do no wrong, because that leader is instrumental in the success of the cause. All wrongdoing must be ignored for the cause. 
when Trump supporters stormed the Capitol back in January. One of them waved a Confederate flag, another draped a neo-Nazi and white supremacist banner across the halls of Congress. How could any of those standing with them ignore such a blatant opposition to the fundamental values of being an American that they claimed to represent? Because they believe in the cause. Just like at Charlottesville in 2017, it doesn't matter if you're standing side by side with a man literally waving a swastika banner, says the radical, because your cause is just enough to ignore the obvious, literal, red flag. To a sensible person, that's batshit crazy. But one must not mistake this kind of indoctrination for a quick process. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes months or years of slow programming by the charismatic leader and their cronies to make someone a true blue cultist. Remember how Jim Jones spent years studying North Korean brainwashing techniques? Exactly that. It's pretty difficult to get people to abandon reality like that. It helps if they have nothing to lose. And that's exactly why it's so interesting to compare modern far-right cultists to radical communist cultists from the 70s. The people who join cults see themselves more correctly in some cases than others as marginalized. But the black community in the 70s was the very true. Decades of segregation and oppression had caused people to believe that they didn't have any ability to change things within normal political spheres. With the far right today, it's less true. It's due to a perceived loss of power and status that was once held by conservative groups. So you have your cause, and then along comes that charismatic leader, and they begin to embody the cause. They encourage this because it's great for their ratings, and soon enough, your average rank-and-file cultist cannot tell apart the cause from the leader. They are the same. Remember that quote from that Twitter account I mentioned before? He said his loyalty was specifically to Donald Trump, not to the United States, not to the Constitution, not to the office of the president, specifically to Trump. The leader is indistinguishable from the goals of the movement, even if two members of the movement in comparing their ideal goal yields radically different perspectives. Some follow Jim Jones because of his communism, some because of his anti-segregationism, some because of his Christianity, and some because it was politically convenient to follow him, but they all followed him. But the true lesson we learn is that a cult leader can come from anywhere. We talked about predicting the next Charles Manson. Well, Charles Manson was a manipulative psychopath who came from a tragic background and was almost molded into the perfect cult leader with a desire for permanent infamy. Jim Jones, however, started life as an eccentric, if well-intentioned, social reformer. He ended it dead in the jungle, surrounded by 909 people who had been killed on his word. Sometimes the villains of life make it easy to spot them. They make themselves look villainous. They enjoy playing the role. Oftentimes they don't. I spent a lot of time today in the early parts of this episode talking up the early accomplishments of Jim Jones, only to juxtapose it with the horrors inflicted before and during Jonestown. This was intentional. To quote Captain Picard again from that same episode of Star Trek, The Drumhead, Mr. Worf, villains who twirl their moustaches are easy to spot. Those who clothe themselves in good deeds are well camouflaged. And with that sage advice from Patrick Stewart, we close the book, for now, at least, on Jim Jones and the People's Temple Cult. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting from Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty theme music needs. Support us on Patreon from as little as £1 a month at Demystified Podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>